Welcome to Questions About Heaven, a podcast about giving Bible answers to our questions about the afterlife with God. Each week we seek to answer real-life questions with biblical answers about the life beyond this world. Now, here's your host, Brad Zockel. I think that one of my favorite prophecies is found in Zechariah chapter 14. I absolutely love this wonderful prophecy about Jesus coming to earth on the Mount of Olives and the wondrous display of what happens on the horizon and in the skies when he does. Good day to you. My name is Brad Zockel, and you're listening to the Questions About Heaven podcast. We have been continuing through this year and talking about the book of Revelation verse by verse, and then I will step back and then bring something else, either an answer to a question about heaven or maybe a new insight into the prophecies, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go into one of the prophecies, and we center all of these podcasts in looking toward heaven and the promise for the believer to the follower of Jesus Christ who has been uh, committed to the Lord and through the blood of Jesus and what he has done on the cross for us. We find salvation and we find victory. And in honoring Yahweh through all of these podcasts, I hope that you learn through the scriptures on what God's promise is in joining him in heaven and giving glory to him as he also shows a wondrous love toward us. And so as we get into our study, you would think that we're going to move over into a revelation or maybe talk about something uh, in the line of what Jesus is talking about heaven. But for today, what we're going to do in this podcast is take you over to a prophecy in Zechariah. And as we see this, the emphasis here is looking at Jesus as it shows us in Revelation chapter 1. He's the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords, and we honor God, and when we see the promises in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 25, that the whole of creation in the new Jerusalem on the new earth will be lit up, not by the sun, moon, and stars, but by the glory of God, Yahweh himself. We'll see that. Through the ages, people have had their different definition of who gods are. If somebody does something they can't predict then they call them a god if they find something beyond their scope, but they like to keep it within their realm of what they think a god should be, then they'll call them that. And there's a lot of confusion in that. And I think about it in Iconium. In Acts chapter 14, we read, in Iconium, Paul is engaged in uh, his ministry there, and part of it, he heals a man. Acts chapter 14 and verse 11, when Paul, the crowd, When Paul had done this, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus, and they called Paul Hermes. The gods, this is what they believe in their thinking, in the mythological background there. They said that the gods had come down in the past, they, that gods had had entrance and made uh, different displays of power to them. And, well, here we look at this as well. And they started calling Paul Hermes and Barnabas Zeus, and Paul was trying to correct them. No, 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 no. And then think about this. If you go back to Acts chapter 28, Paul is on Malta, 
and he is gathering wood. He's bitten by a snake. Oh, this is an asp, A-S-P. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that death comes, the swelling starts within 30 seconds. And Paul's bitten by the snake when he lands in Malta, and they see him shake the snake off, and so it was attached to him. So they basically just sit there and say, well, you know, he did something wrong. He was going to be judged by it. Acts chapter 28, verse 6. They were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead from the bite. But after they'd waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their mind, and these Maltese people began to say that he was a god. They were really into calling people gods when they saw something that they couldn't understand. When something was beyond their uh, scope of power, then they start calling them gods. And that was their thinking there. But when we start seeing the truth about who this God is, the one God, Yahweh, in whom we enjoy and rejoice in and worship and pray to and read about, well, then there is something very, very powerful that takes us, uh, us well above the thinking of mankind in what I might call pocket gods, convenient gods, uh, people that will have a God that will help them in this situation, or maybe they have a deity that will ta- help them along here. And then this idea of an overpowering God is too much because I can't control him. And that's the thinking here. When we talk about heaven, I'll have a number of people that will tell me, here's what I've decided what heaven is for me. This is what I want. And I've seen more than one comment in my various social media ministries that somebody will come on and say, heaven is whatever you want it to be. Do you understand? This makes no sense whatsoever. It wouldn't even work here in South Carolina. You can do whatever you want about purchasing land. Don't you think that there's going to be an encroachment on other people's desires? You can obey any law you want. Don't you think that's going to be a conflict? Why would we take this into the heavenly realm by people who claim to be Christians? We get confused about this. This is an interesting story that that I keep in my uh, files here. When we talk about, let's say, when we're going to have a certain commission, uh, a responsibility, you need to be smart about how you go about this. Now, I, I believe I'm pronouncing this right. There is a town in Romania called Karensebis. And I was reading about the battle of Karensebis, and I found out how serious a mistake in what if you forget job one. This has got to be one of the strangest stories I've ever read when it comes to wartime history. It was on September 19th, 1788, that a group of Australian cavalrymen were scouting for enemy Turkish forces and defending their post near Karensebis. Uh, uh, this is a small town. You would locate it in modern Romania nowadays. Now, instead of violent resistance, the men found simply a band of gypsies who had a wagon load of booze, bunch of alcohol, ton of it. And so these soldiers, these Austrian uh, cavalrymen, were bored and thirsty. And so they bought out the entire supply, these Austrians, and proceeded to drink it all. A few hours later, a separate group of Austrian foot soldiers came along and wanted to join the booze fest. But the cavalrymen refused to share it, so much so that they actually built a makeshift wall around their liquor. Well, that hurt some feelings. And so people started getting angry, and then they started getting into fisticuffs, and it got worse and worse. 
and there was a pretty serious fight between the two groups out in an open field. Now, in order to get the cavalry to look the other way, some of the foot soldiers wanted to get at that alcohol, so they cried out, fake cry, that they saw the enemy Turkish soldiers coming. And that seemed like a good move, but it backfired incredibly, as everybody, both the cavalry and all the other soldiers, turned into a wild stampede back toward the camp. In misunderstanding and in all the confusion, this got real bad. Austrian officers tried to straighten it out by crying out orders here and there. But you had these armies, and they had different languages. There were mixed forces. Slovaks, Hungarians, Italians, and they couldn't understand the Austrian-German that was being called. As a matter of fact, when I'm reading this, the noise in the Germanic, when they called halt, this was mistaken in their call for halt in their language. It was mistaken for Allah. And that only made it even more so because they thought that people were calling out to the gods or to God, and the madness got worse. Meanwhile, the rest of the camp had 100,000 soldiers over here, and they woke to this battle noise, and they assumed that the Turks actually were attacking them. And so what they did is they sprung right into it, into combat, and everything got so confusing in here in Karensebis, the army started shooting randomly into the group of all these regiments because they couldn't tell who was who. And they were so terrified, and all of this, just them all, the Turks are nowhere around, that they abandoned the town of Karensebis altogether, and they're running it toward other towns. And I am told, in, in, in as I'm reading this, I read that they were scattered and running forth 30 miles down the road before they were able to get organized under new leadership and be able to get anything of any semblance of reasonableness. Now, two days after the battle, the enemy Turks did arrive at Karensebes, and they found hundreds of dead and wounded Austrian soldiers. They were totally surprised when they heard what had happened they executed the survivors, and they took the city with no losses whatsoever. Now, I want you to think about this now as we go into our study. The Austrians were soldiers with uniforms and uh, riflery and uh, assignments, but they forgot job one. They forgot job one. And I'm thinking about this when I go to Matthew chapter 22, and we see that the Pharisees went out, and they were going to try to trap Jesus. Now, they're hearing him talking about heaven and the eternal kingdom. They just didn't like him. They didn't like the way he was going. They didn't like the way he was cramping their style of what they were doing and their power. And what they did was, I want you to understand something. They joined up in Matthew 22 with the Herodians, and they couldn't stand the Herodians. The Herodians were very worldly. They actually liked the Romans. They liked the little payoff going on. And the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. They did believe in honoring God, and they couldn't stand each other. But they wanted Jesus out of the way so much, they were willing to compromise with Herodians. And they say this, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity, and you teach the way of God. You are very much with the truth. And Matthew 22 is telling us this. You aren't swayed by others. 
You don't care about anybody else. You don't have a bother with them. You bow to no man. Well, what, here, here's the thing. We want to ask you something. Is it right to pay tax to Caesar or not? Now, when Jesus knows what they're trying to do is they're trying to get him entrapped. If he goes pro-Roman, they can catch him on being a traitor to the cause. If he goes against Rome, they can get him as being an overall traitor against Rome, and they can get him taken care of that way too. Jesus knows where they're going, Jesus being God. And he says basically this, you're nothing but hypocrites. You're trying to entrap me. Okay, come here, show me the coin that you're supposed to use for paying taxes. And they bring over a denarius, and he asks them very simply, whose image is this? Whose inscription's on this? And they say very simply, Caesar's. And he says to them, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Now, it says when they heard this, the Greek word is almost like they were dumbstruck. They were very amazed. They didn't know what to do. He caught him right down the middle. And what he's saying is, I could care less about this kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven. So they left him and they went away. And so when we take a look at this, we will have people that will get so involved with things to tangle up each other with wordiness, wordsmithing, pushing Jesus aside into a caricature. They miss job one. And even Christians will do this too. We forget the joy of the kingdom we forget everything about the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a real tragedy. When we see, and as I love as we turn to Zechariah chapter 14, when Jesus comes in full power, in full authority, and he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we have a great example, when we see this happening in Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus is victorious over the worst satanic forces on earth who gather as one on the plain of Esdralin in the valley of Jezreel to take on the Lord. Revelation 19, the battle is so short, there's no description of it. It's over. Now, I want to take you to something here that is most, most powerful in this. And I had shared this, and this has received a very, very powerful response as uh, I had shared this this morning in here, in Zechariah chapter 14, we see a prophecy in Zechariah about when Jesus wins the battle of Armageddon and then comes down to earth. You see, in the rapture, he does not come down to earth. So Jesus' first coming is in Bethlehem. His second coming is right here predicted at the end of the battle of Armageddon, and he comes down to Jerusalem. So here's what it says, and I want to take you through this. Zechariah chapter 14. This is a fascinating Old Testament insight into this moment when Christ returns. The Lord's coming is in, uh, the, in the victory over all the nations that united to fight Jerusalem. And this is what it says. Jesus is talking about this in, when he talks about his teaching in the Mount of Olives. Verse 2 of Zechariah 14. This is a prophecy now. And it tells you that he is going to come and to fight. Yahweh is going to come forth. Verse 3, Yahweh, Jesus being God, will go forth and fight against those nations as the day when he fights on a day of battle. Now listen to verse 4. This is the time of the return of Jesus. And in that day, 
His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is after the victory. Jesus comes down to earth. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east, right next to the eastern gate. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And what that will do, that will split open that cemetery that is right before the eastern gate. And in fulfillment of Ezekiel 14, the Deliverer, capital D, the Prince, capital P, will go through the smashed open eastern gate and we've declared this one, the long-awaited Messiah. But now listen, when this happens, this valley opens up, and we'll walk through the midst of this a brand new valley that will be opened up because of his feet causing this massive earthquake. Listen in verse 6. The lights go out. In the sky, all of the stars go out. Extinguish, I think if I have right, the word in uh, the Hebrew is literally the luminaries will congeal. They will just soften up and just burn out. Verse 6, and it will be in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Now, the Hebrew word is yakar. The brilliant ones will fade. So, this means stars, sun, moon, they're all done. They're closed. This is going to be total darkness, as if you're in a cave. Total darkness, no light whatsoever. Verse 7, and it will be a unique day which is known to Yahweh. Well, I can tell you that. This has never happened before. Pitch blackness like when I was uh, down in Tennessee over to the Lost Sea, an underground cave system, and they turned off all the lights. And we're totally disoriented. I told my family, I'm going to walk toward the exit. I know they're going to turn off the lights sometime here. They always do it in these caves. And I'm going to work toward that exit. I'm going to go slowly. But I'm going to leave the group and shuffle over there and see how close I get to the exit before they turn on the lights. And I think they only had the lights off for about 15, 26, maybe 30. And I kept shuffling, and I knew my directions. And when they turned the light back on, I was nowhere near the exit. You're, you have nothing to give you any orientation. Can you imagine the entire world having no light whatsoever here? It is a unique day, to say the, the least. Known to Yahweh in his plans, the Lord has designated this day. But listen in verse 7. It is such a confusing day, it's considered neither day or night. But now look, when he comes down, the light will emanate from him, just as it says in John chapter 1, capital L, Jesus is the light in the darkness. And we see the manifestation of that here in this prophecy. Jesus is coming Glory is always represented through the Bible in a way that we can express it as light. Jesus is coming in this way. The heavenly bodies will respond in this way, and his light is almost like it ignites everything else, and things go back to normal. The earth will now relax and get away from the curse. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22 say, that creation's been groaning all this time. This beautiful, beautiful scene here. Verse 8, and it will be in that day now, now it's called day, that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as winter. What is happening? Well, verse 9, Yahweh will be king over all the earth, and that day Yahweh will be the only one, and his name one. He is designated as the one. This is the beginning of the millennial kingdom, the beginning of a celebration 
that has no end for the Christian. This will, the desert will bloom like a rose. I tell people it, it would be like this, is what I tell my classes. If you go over to Israel, and it's a beautiful, beautiful country, trust me, it's wonderful, but it is dry. It is desert. Israel will out will out-vegetate Hawaii. It will out-bloom Hawaii. These eternal rivers flowing from the throne itself will make this area to become so very much tropical-like. And this is just the first promise of this beautiful millennial kingdom. What a great, great prophecy in which we can encourage ourselves in this and giving us just a precursor of the eternal state of the new heaven and new earth of Revelation 21. There's more I can say, but I've got to wrap things up right now. Thank you so much. This is Brad Zockel. I appreciate you so very, very much. If you'd like to know more about our ministry, please look us up. Our working foundational uh, ministry site is zulon.org, X-U-L-O-N.org, zulon.org. And in there, I'm the director of the Zulon International Bible Institute, and our our main ministry is through the Heaven Tour. And if you will go to our secondary site, which will be introduced later this week, you can write this down and remember this. The Heaven Tour, T-H-E, Heaven, T-O-U-R, theheaventour.com. And then you can get access to the hundreds and hundreds of one and two minute videos telling about heaven, and by using keywords can have all the ones brought up on a subject you'd like to know about. Angels, and it will bring up every one of the videos on angels. Jesus Christ the King, and it will give you every one when we talk about Jesus Christ the King. Thrones, every one that talks about thrones. All of these things, and you'll find them there. A great reference to you to use for your study and to share with others. Theheaventour.com, C-O-M. Thank you so much. God bless you. This is Brad Zockel here in the barn studio here. I appreciate the fact we can be together and study and get answers to questions about heaven. God bless you, and Lord willing, we'll talk soon. Thanks for joining us this week on Questions About Heaven with Brad Zockel of the Zulon International Bible Institute. Be sure to visit our website, zulon.org, to learn more about our Bible ministry. That's X-U-L-O-N dot org. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And keep an eye out for our upcoming ebook, Questions About Heaven. Thanks, God bless you, and have a great day.